Thank you, worship team. It was excellent. Comforting to the heart to sing those words and all those songs. Let's begin with prayer. All alike must confess thy might. Lord, the day will come when every knee will bow and tongue confess that you are Lord. Even we fight to follow your Lordship in our life. And certainly the world around us does. The evidence is everywhere of that. And God, I pray that you would use your word uh, to bring about grace in our life, that you would you would broaden our understanding of who you are. You would open our eyes to see you as you are, to treasure you as you are, and to understand your purposes and how you work awful things for good often. Lord, your purposes will come to pass. And I pray for your grace in explaining your word. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. And I want to begin this morning's message by stating the obvious. None of us are in the situation of the children of Israel at the close of chapter 1. None of us have been commanded by our government to throw our infants into the Nile. None of us are slaves being forced to work under extreme oppression. And therefore, it's easy not to feel our need for a deliverer. Imagine that you were to have a conversation with a Hebrew woman who had just given her second child up to the Nile. And she were to ask you, Why do you, 21st century American, need a deliverer? Why do you think you need a deliverer? How would you respond? Maybe you would say, It's true. I'm not oppressed, I'm not enslaved. Or are you? See, what the Israelites will come to find out is that their real slave master is not Pharaoh. Because even after escaping Egypt and being set free to worship God in the wilderness, they still struggle to worship God. It becomes obvious that they're really enslaved to a far more ruthless and a far more cruel slave master. Sin. Paul says this in Romans 6.16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? And Jesus also affirmed this truth when he said in John 8.34, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
And Paul's point and Jesus' point is this, is if your life is characterized by sin, you are a slave of sin. A person might wisely then be prompted to ask, well, how would I know then if my life is characterized by sin? Ask yourself, is your life characterized more by following your desires or by following God's desires? Are most of your decisions based upon what you want or what God wants? The Bible tells us there is only one way to be delivered from the slavery of sin. To repent and to believe that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for the sin that you deserved upon the cross. There is no other way to be reconciled to God. No amount of good deeds can break the power of sin in your life. It can only be broken through faith in Jesus Christ. But what about those who have already been saved from sin? All the, those of us who are already following Christ, who have already trusted Christ for salvation, do they need a deliverer? Having been delivered from sin? How many of you this week have cried out like Paul in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Do you identify with Romans 8, 23, that says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. No, we're not enslaved to sin anymore. But yes, we still cry out for a deliverer. Because we still need to be delivered from this body. And we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. So why do I bring up this need for deliverance before getting into Exodus chapter 2? It's because understanding our need for deliverance from sin and ultimately from our corrupted flesh will keep in perspective the relevance that this chapter has for us today. We may not be crying out for deliverance from Egyptian slave masters, but if we rightly understand our present condition, we will also presently be longing for our deliverer to come soon. So hopefully this persuades us to the relevance of chapter 2. Let's, let's now look at the setting of chapter 2. In chapter 1, as we heard last week, we were presented with the sovereign goodness of God and the oppression of His people. See, despite Pharaoh's intent purpose to wipe out the Hebrews, God continues to multiply them. And so we see God's blessing in preserving His people but we need to recognize it was a horrific situation nonetheless. It was awful. And this was emphasized in the final verse that says, And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And this sets the scene for chapter 2, with Pharaoh's soldiers on the hunt for Hebrew children 
And when they find them, they will cast them into the Nile. And I've broken the chapter up into four sections that I've entitled The Preservation of the Deliverer, The Failure of the Deliverer, The Sojourning of the Deliverer, and then finally the chapter closes with a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness. Let's look first at verses 1 through 10, The Preservation of the, the Deliverer. The section follows chapter 1 in that we see God's preservation of his people, and one of those people in particular comes into focus, Moses. And we know that God is going to raise up Moses to eventually oppression. And first, we get this brief genealogical background of Moses, and a fuller one will be presented in chapter 6. This is what we have first, and it says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And one of the things that you'll notice, first of all, is that Moses' parents aren't named. Neither is his sister until later on. We find out later that his father's name is Amaran, his mother's name Jochebed, his sister Miriam. But right here, the narrator isn't concerned to provide the details that we might expect. But we do see one name highlighted, Levi. The narrator has decided to emphasize the fact that Moses was a descendant of Levi. Now, why would that be important to recognize? Well, the Levites, the sons of Levi, became the priests of the Hebrew people. And so, most likely, this highlights the role that Moses will play, as well as Aaron, in being the mediator to God's people. He was their mediator, and that was the job of the priest. And then in verse 2, we're offered more clues about the significance of this child. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. So the first clue we're given is that he is a fine child. He's a fine child. Some translators translate it good, and really that's what the word means. It's it's just a general word for good, and that's what challenges translators in this verse. So what does it mean that he was a fine child. He's a good child. Does it mean that he was like Jesus in a way in the manger? That he didn't cry when he was born? Uh, Some Jewish um, translators or commentators said they thought that he was born already circumcised, and that's what designated him as a good child. And certainly, there was something about Moses that that was significant, but I think that the the highlight of the word good is really more literary than physical. It's a, it's a literary cue given by the narrator. The Hebrew construction is actually parallel to the phrases in the creation narrative. And in that, in the creation narrative, as you remember when we studied Exodus, or sorry, Genesis, and God saw that it was good. After everything that God created, it said, and God, God saw that it was good. And here we have the same construction. When she saw, he was a good child. The phrasing beckons us to consider that there is something special about this child that has to do with the making of something new. Something that God is in. Or maybe there was something special about the birth of Moses that reminded his mother of the promise that was given to Eve early on in Genesis, that her seed would crush the serpent's head. 
Maybe she thought this was the promised seed. Interestingly enough, the symbol of the Egyptian dynasty is the cobra. That's often why you'll see um, pharaohs who have been entombed. They have the hood on them, or they have a little cobra sticking off the top of their headdress. It's because the symbol of the dynasty was the cobra hood. So maybe Jochebed wondered if this was the promised seed, the good child who would crush the serpent's head. And this view could be supported by Hebrews 11.23 that explains that it was the faith of Moses' parents that caused them to hide them. They, They were trusting in something. There was something significant about Moses, and they were trusting God that he would preserve him. And as it turns out, Moses was the one who would crush the serpent's head. Not in the ultimate sense of the one who crushed Satan. That was Jesus' work done on the cross. But certainly, Moses prefigures Christ as the one whom God uses to crush Pharaoh and his army through the Red Sea. And so when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. The child's life was in danger, and so she had to do something about it. He was about three weeks old, or sorry, three months old, I believe. And if he stayed with them, he would be killed. And so Moses' mother constructs an ark. I'm thinking, an ark? It says basket. Why do you say ark? Well, interestingly, the word that's used for basket here is the word tabah. And the only other time that word is used is in the book of Genesis, and it's translated ark. It's the same word. So she made an ark. And this literary pointer to the ark is also reflected in the fact that Moses' basket was covered with pitch, just like the ark was. And so the reader is supposed to make the connection that just as God had preserved mankind through the flood in an ark, likewise, God is in the business of preserving mankind through the person of Moses. It also says that he was placed amongst the reeds. Why point this out? Why not just say he was coasted in the, in the Nile River? Why amongst the reeds? And the significance here is in the Hebrew word for reed. It's the word suf. Moses will eventually lead the people through the Yom Suf, or the Reed Sea. Some translators demand that the Red Sea should be translated Reed Sea, and so you'll see that in some Bibles, or at least a note. But it's the same word, and there's purposeful irony being projected by God here. The little baby is preserved in a basket, placed in the reeds, and the most powerful army in the world will be crushed in the reeds sea later on. God's about his purpose. So Moses is preserved, and his sister stands at a distance to know what will be done to him. He's placed in a basket, and as he floats along, Miriam finds a place where she could get a good glimpse of what's going on. And the point is that a little girl is taking a key part in this deliverance plot. And so the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. 
When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. She took pity on him. There is real strength in the word that's used here. She took pity on him. The verb is not like, in, in, the, in the modern phrase, she felt sorry for him, like we might feel when our little boy loses his t-ball game. It's, it's not that. It's much stronger. When she, what she felt for the baby was strong enough for her to disregard the decree of Pharaoh, her father, and to preserve him, despite his decree to kill all Hebrew boys. And note what is perceived by many to be a womanly weakness, compassion for a baby, is what God uses to preserve his people. It's what God uses to defy the decree from this king. Another thing you see here is that Pharaoh had thought that sparing women was safe. Remember the last verse of chapter 1? Every daughter shall live. But the midwives, the Hebrew mother, the daughter, Miriam, the daughter of Pharaoh, all of them play a key role in reversing Pharaoh's purposes in sparing Moses. The providence of God is further seen in how the story continues. Verse 7, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give him, I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So Miriam, on the ball, bursts onto the scene and readily offers to find a wet nurse for Pharaoh's daughter. And so, of course, she runs back home, tells her mom about it. Mother comes, and she gets paid to care for her own child that had just been given up for dead. God is orchestrating all of this very clearly. The text continues. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. There's some really interesting information on the etymology of Moses' name. See, in Egyptian, it probably means one who is born of the Nile god. You might be familiar with the the, the Egyptian pharaoh Tutmos. That would be one born of the god Tut. And Moses, Mos, probably had some similar verbiage there. So it probably means one born of the Nile God. But in Hebrew, it means the one who draws out. And so the narrator's having some fun with Moses' name. God is going to use Moses, of course, to draw out his people. One commentator said this, translating the words of the princess into Hebrew allowed for effective wordplay to capture the significance of the story in the sound of the name. The implication for the Israelites is something to this effect. You called him born one in your language and after your custom, but in our language that name means drawing out, which is what was to become of him. You drew him out of the water, but he would draw us out of Egypt. 
through the water. So, so far in the story, we see circumstances pointing to Moses as being the ultimate deliverer of Israel. And we also see the sovereign power of God at work bringing circumstances about so that Moses is preserved, the deliverer is preserved, and that Pharaoh, God's avowed enemy, will actually raise up that deliverer in his own household. Let's look now at the failure of the deliverer, verses 11 through 15. Verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So Moses' growth really isn't pertinent to the story at this point, and so the narrator just kind of skips it, much like he does the growth of Jesus as a child. But apparently, somewhere along the line, Moses became aware of his Hebrew descent. And quite likely, he recognized that God had raised him up to be the deliverer of his people. We're helped by the author of Hebrews, who gives us some insight into Moses' heart during his childhood in Egypt. It says there, By faith, when he grew up, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be ill-treated with the people of God than to enjoy sin's fleeting pleasure. And what's important to note here is that Moses made an explicit choice. He made an explicit choice to leave the household of Pharaoh even if it meant ill-treatment. And he probably did so recognizing that he had some purpose to fulfill. And so, when he goes out to see his brethren, he sees one being beaten. And he looks this way and that, and seeing no one, he strikes down the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. This is not a good event. It's not a good event. In fact, it's the classic example of doing the right thing with completely, sorry, in completely the wrong way. And of course, that's the point of the section. See, Moses supposes that deliverance will be accomplished through physical force. Isn't that how deliverance is accomplished? You raise up a revolution and start killing people? So Moses kills his first Egyptian. But before he does it, he looks this way and that way, makes sure nobody's watching him, and strikes him. And he buries his body. Now Moses' covert action is very telling. See, Moses wants to seize control of his calling to be a deliverer, but he's afraid of being caught, and his fear of being caught is demonstration of his lack of confidence in God. It's youthful and impulsive. He wants to deliver Israel, but he tries to do so in his own strength and in his own unrighteous ways. He takes authority that is not his, and he justifies his action, his lack of respect for authority, because of his calling. He strikes down the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. The fact that he hides the Egyptian also says volumes about his confidence in being a deliverer. See, Moses should have known better. See, if God has truly called somebody to a task, 
There's absolutely no reason to hide your actions. There's no reason to be ashamed of what you would do. Why the deception and secrecy? Fear? Shame? The psychology of Moses is really fascinating to me. We see his confidence. He kills a man. He kills a man. And at the same time, he has a lack of confidence. He hides the evidence. But in all this, what you see is this explicit lack of trust in God and trust in himself. He lacks trust in that he feels like he needs to take the situation into his own hands. To the extent that he sins. But he also lacks trust in that he hides his deeds, assuming that after he killed the man, that God's not going to protect him. Because he's afraid. See, Moses knows that he doesn't have the right to kill the Egyptian. Despite Pharaoh's godless commands against the Hebrew people, he doesn't have the right. Pharaoh's disobedience does not sanction Moses' disobedience. See, Moses goes out of bounds here. And because he goes out of bounds, the deliverance fails horribly. And Moses becomes very disillusioned. Open your Bibles, or flip over your Bibles, hopefully they're already opened, to Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 7, we have Stephen giving a speech to some of the Jewish leaders. And the point of his speech is the Jewish leaders have always been a rebellious and stiff-necked people. And in his exposition, he tells the story of Moses. Beginning in verse 23, chapter 7, verse 23. He says, When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. This is key. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. See, Acts 7.25 tells us he supposed that his brothers would understand God was giving them salvation by his hand. So Moses expected to have some sort of following after this act. But he gets just the opposite. Back to Exodus chapter 2, verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? For Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. So Moses sees two Hebrews fighting and tries to break up the fight. And he does so by confronting the guilty man. And the guilty man rejects Moses' intervention. It's as if he said, who died and made you boss, Moses? And then he kind of, you know, pushes it a little bit further and says, you're going to kill me? 
just like he did the Egyptian? In other words, I know you have no authority, and you don't respect authority. Who are you to to command some sort of leadership? Moses has come to deliver him, but they don't want to follow him. So not wanting an authority, they question the authority of Moses. And in this instance, it's somewhat valid. Because Moses had no authority, and he knew it, which is why he covered it up, his actions. And then his eventual flight into Midian. Moses flees. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. The point of this section is that Moses blew it big time. Think about it. God had done so much for him. God had preserved his life as an infant when many of his brothers probably perished. God allowed him to be raised by his own mother until he was weaned. God had then allowed him to be a Hebrew who was raised in the house of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, giving him the very best education of that time. And what does Moses do with all of this blessing? He blows it in an instant. Foolish, presumptive, self-confidence blows his chances as a deliverer. See, now how are God's people going to be delivered? There is sadness in this section, but there's tremendous comfort as well, because we know the story of Moses doesn't end here. Of course, Moses doesn't know this. For all we knew, he had, all that had been invested in him and all that had, he had worked for was blown in an instant. Imagine further what his parents or his fellow Hebrews must have felt. This was our chance. This was our deliverer. And he's gone to Midian. They didn't know what we know. But God was still going to use him. And what comfort there is for us in this. God can take us in our brokenness. God can take us in our failures and still use us for tremendous purposes. This might be the greatest story of redemption in history. I mean, don't miss it. Moses was a murderer. He killed a man. And God uses that man to deliver his people from Egypt. God can use any of us, even after our sin. Incredible comfort in that. How might God still use you despite your failures, despite your brokenness? How might God still use you? you know, when, I, when I look at this passage, it makes me wonder, is there another Moses in this room that just feels like because of what's happened earlier in their life, because of choices they've already made, they can't be used? They're limited. But maybe God is just preparing you for something even greater than your expectations.
That was certainly the case with Moses. But he does sojourn in Midian for 40 years. Let's look at his sojourning in verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. So the daughters of the priest of Midian were shepherding their flocks, and they had just finished lifting their heavy buckets of water. This would have been a a significant amount of work, one bucket after another, to feed a whole flock of whatever it was. It doesn't tell us if it was sheep or goats or camels or whatever. But an incredible amount of work. And so right after they they fill the troughs with water, their animals are thirsty, they come running, then the other shepherds run in and drive them off, and take advantage of their work in order to feed their flocks or water their flocks. We can maybe identify with the the injustice of this. Maybe at work, you've had a boss that takes credit for all the work that you've put in, or maybe even a coworker. This is what was going on. Incredible injustice. And Moses sees this, and he's provoked. He does something about it. Now, we're not given the details exactly what he does, but... He saves the girls, and then after saving them, he goes about redoing the work. He waters their flocks for them. And interestingly, the verb that's used in verse 17 means, and he saved them. It means that he came to their rescue and he delivered them. And by the choice of words, the narrator is portraying Moses as a deliverer. That's the point. And also, when the daughters recount their experience to their father, they use another word for salvation. The word natsal. It means to to deliver or to rescue. So the narrator is pointing out, Moses is being used as a deliverer. He delivers here. Verse 18. When they came home to their father, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds, and he even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? You can just picture this scene. Call him that he may eat bread. Like, why did you leave him? This is a great guy. Verse 21, and so Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Maybe one, uh, one or most of you are wondering, why is, his, why is Moses' father-in-law called Reuel here? Um, much ink has been spilled, but probably it's just another name. He's called Jethro in chapter 3 and in other passages. But it's probably just a, a title, maybe, or just another name for the same man. But there are a couple of ironic features in this account that I want to point out. First, I find it ironic that nomadic shepherds were harassing the women. Jacob's sons, who eventually went to uh, Egypt, were nomadic shepherds. And these women are saved from nomadic shepherds by an Egyptian. Another ironic thing is Moses was previously rejected by the people of Israel after his attempted deliverance. But when he saves the daughters of the priest of Midian... He's offered incredible hospitality. 
Not only is he offered bread, but what else is he given? He's given a wife. That's incredible hospitality. Not bad. So he's rejected by his people, but this Gentile priests immediate, offer immediate and overwhelming hospitality. And it's stunning to note that that's the pattern that's also given of the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus preached to his people, and he healed thousands of men, women, and children throughout Israel. Proclaiming the deliverance of God through him, but his authority was rejected by them. This is most, uh, most poignantly seen when he's before the crowds, and Pontius Pilate says, let me release him. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. Caesar is our king. This man is not our king. They reject him. And after that rejection, the ministry of God goes to the Gentiles. Like Moses was rejected here by his people and then went to minister amongst the Gentiles for 40 years, likewise, Christ's ministry has spread to us, the Gentile nations. And this is why Paul tells us this in Romans 11, verse 25. He reminds the Gentiles here, he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But the story for Israel isn't over. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And in this will my covenant with them be when I take away their sins. So Moses' rejection and years of sojourning in Midian amongst Gentiles is a picture of Jesus' rejection and eventually the offer of salvation going to the Gentiles. And just as Moses eventually restored Israel to God, likewise, Jesus will eventually restore Israel to God. As Paul says in verse 26, all Israel will be saved. So the main point of the section is that Moses the deliverer is forced to sojourn in a foreign land. And that is, of course, why he names his son Gershom. The naming is a very clear expression that Moses knows he is not where he is supposed to be. It stresses the point that Moses has been driven away from his proper place. See, one might be led to believe that God's purposes of raising up a deliverer had failed. His deliverer had been exiled. And for 40 years, Israel had already been oppressed for 400 years. Where is God? What about his covenant? This is why he closes the way he does in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, 
and God knew. See, God was not absent, and he was not ignorant of the situation. And this is clarified with remarkable emphasis. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. We could simplify this section really easily just by highlighting the main subjects in the verb. The king of Egypt died. Israel groaned and cried out. The cry came up to God. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. See, the typical grammatical construction that you would expect in the Hebrew would be the subject would be given just once at the beginning and then you'd have these other verbs follow it. So typically, what we'd expect this text to say is God heard, remembered, saw, and knew. But instead, what you have is the subject repeated again and again and again and again, and that's for emphasis. None of this was an accident, is the point. I love Isaiah 63, 9's clarification here. In all of their affliction, he was afflicted. God was not standing by as some unaffected spectator. God heard. God saw. God remembered. God knew. And it's interesting, the last clause, and God knew, leaves the object unexpressed within the clause. It says, and God knew. And the the object's unexpressed. The audience is left waiting to hear what comes next. And what comes next is, of course, Exodus chapter 3, when God finally calls his deliverer to go back to Egypt. Don't miss God's intentionality in this final section. God knows we are but dust, as we read about in Psalm 103. He knows how frail we are. He knows how quick we are to doubt his steadfast love in the midst of trial. He knows that the primary arrow of Satan in the midst of a trial is to make us think God is absent. God has forgotten you. God is blind to your situation. Take it into your own hands. And so what God does here at the end of Exodus 2 is he gives us assurance for our hope as we, Christians, await our final and perfect deliverance when Jesus shall come. It gives us hope that we know when we face oppression and when we long, like Paul longs in Romans chapter 7, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? We have this promise that God saw, God heard, God remembered, and God knew. And God hears you. God sees you. God remembers you. And God knows. Let's pray. There is no, absolutely no greater comfort than those words, Lord. Because we know of your steadfast love. And to know that you know all of what we have gone through you know all of what we're going through. You know where, what we're going to go through. And we know because of Christ, you don't treat us as our sins deserve. 
As far as the east is from the west, so great is your steadfast love towards those who fear you. And again, God, we have that confidence, not because we've done anything to deserve your love, but because your son, Jesus Christ, took the penalty we deserved on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin, and we're forgiven. And now you're causing everything to work together for good because you called us according to your purpose. And all of your purposes shall stand. You will not reject us. Instead, you will keep us. What a comfort it is, God, to know that you who who set the stars into place, who works every atomic movement in, in in a precise order, accomplishing all of your purposes, you, Yahweh, love us with a love that is unspeakable and full of glory. We praise you. God, help us to worship you. Remind us of these truths as we go about worshiping you this week. We ask these things in your name.